Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Wolf, Kyone Wolf. Up until 2003, most people had never heard of Valerie Plame. And that was exactly how she liked it. She was an undercover CIA operative working to prevent the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, specifically nuclear weapons. But then, members of the Bush administration leaked her identity to a journalist and... Well, all hell broke loose. We'll get to that story a little later in the show, but first, it's not every day you get to talk to a former CIA agent in charge of keeping the world from totally exploding. I met with her in an undisclosed Zoom room and asked her, does she ever look at her accomplishments and think, this is so cool? <laughs> well, it's not like I grew up thinking I want to be a spy. I, I didn't think that at, at all. I didn't know that was a career choice. Um, but I did come from a family of service. My dad was an Air Force officer and he served in World War II. Uh, my brother was in the Marines and he was wounded in Vietnam. My mother was a public school teacher. So this notion of public service was something always in the background. And when I had the opportunity and was hired by the CIA, I thought, okay, uh, this sounds like a lot more interesting than what my friends are doing. And it was a chance to serve my country. It was the height of the Cold War. So it was very clear who was wearing the white hats, who was wearing the black hats. And uh, it turned out I was good at it, and I loved what I did. Now, going back up a little bit, when you decided to apply to the CIA, how much did you know what you were getting into? Now, you certainly couldn't predict. I mean, it's the nature of the beast, right? We can't. I can't. I'm a public radio host, and I have no idea what I've gotten myself into. Though <laughs> I've been here for 17 years, I I know that there's no telling what's coming at you. But how much? Did you really have a handle on what you were getting into and how much were you so green? No, I had no idea. Um, and it was pre-internet, so I couldn't even do extensive research. You read. I have to say, though, within those first couple of weeks where I'm meeting my cohort and the, some of the best, so smart, really interesting. Of course, later I found out like they, they hire people that are just like you. So of course you get along, you know, you have certain personality traits uh, in, uh, what is that? Myers-Briggs yeah. <laughs> parlance. It's ENTJ is who they're looking for, for ops officers. It's like, look, everyone in this room's just like me. And, uh, and once you recognize that, you can, you know, you read into people a little better. But no, the answer is I had no idea. But they're, they're big. The government's big on training. And as you go through extensive training to go out into the field, uh, they are looking at you very, very closely, although you've been very carefully selected and vetted through all sorts of thing, you know, through interviews and background checks and polygraphs and all that stuff. It's not until you really get to what we call the farm, where you do that ops training, 
that they are looking very carefully to see how you respond in all sorts of situations and under under pressure, under sleep deprivation, what's your judgment? How are you reacting with other people? Not only your classmates, but in this fake world of where you're supposed to be moving around. And, and it, of course, nothing prepares you for the field, but they can at least tell if you, if you have common sense, which is not so common. There was a story about how they posed some scenarios to like, what if you were in a hotel room discussing something with a male asset and police officers start knocking on the door? What would you have done in that case? <laughs> well, that actually happened during some interviews process before I was hired by the CIA. It is a long process, months and months that you understandably go through a security background check, mental uh, you're doing psychological evaluations, and there's a piece of it where they're posing vignettes to you. And in my case, it was an older woman. And so she's going through, you know, how would you respond to this? She's giving me little stories. And at the very end, she says, okay, here's where you are. You're in a hotel room in a foreign country. You are meeting a male asset and highly, highly sensitive information and he's passing you papers uh in the hotel room and all of a sudden you hear a loud knock on the door police open up let us in what do you do and as young and naive as i was i had the wherewithal to to figure out the only really good reason that a man and a woman are in a hotel room the obvious so I said, well, obviously we would jump in bed and I'd start taking off my clothes, you know, make him. Dead. And uh, she didn't exactly smile, but I could tell that, you know, she said, oh, mm -hmm. what did you tell your family and friends? Was there like, could your immediate family know more than your cousin or your best friend? How did how did that work? I did tell my parents, uh, but my mother was an inveterate worrier. So I kept, you know, details to a minimum, no details, um, but they knew. Which is like a lot of teenagers too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's best if you don't know details. Um, but uh, no, despite when I was outed in 2003 and despite the Republicans' best efforts to paint me as, oh, everyone knew who she was, she wasn't covert, you know, this is all nonsense. That's not true. The people who knew where I really worked, I, you could count on the fingers of one hand. And uh, that's how it should be. Um, ha having that secret is a burden to others. And what's paramount is keeping your assets, the people that you are meeting and running and recruiting, keeping them safe. Their security is paramount. I can't help but wonder how much over your career, you compartmentalized yourself. You had to as part of the job, right? And and that's, I wonder how, if there's a part of you that after all this time feels like you were split or severed from like your soul. Yeah, well, not from my soul ever, but what happens, again, this comes in choosing people with those right personality and character traits, but it becomes woven throughout your life. It's not like you go to your covert job and do that. And uh, it it is woven throughout your life and uh, your friends and your contacts. Your, I suppose unconsciously you are 
always in the back of your mind, assessing people that you're meeting overseas as potential targets for recruitment if they have access to good information. So there is that. There's always a awareness of surveillance. So that takes a long time to leave. And it wasn't until years after I was outed that I <laughs> exhaled, I felt. a lot. I made a lot of changes. Changes happened to me. I, I ran for Congress and I lost, which is now, thank goodness. Uh, but I really wanted to serve my country again. But that's its own craziness, running for public office. And then COVID happened. And as all of us enforced quietude, um, I was not one of those who like learned Mandarin on my, you know, uh, Duolingo. Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I allowed myself the time and the space. And there'd been a lot of personal trauma, turmoil that I was really able to unpack, like what the hell just happened in the last two decades? Uh, so your question about being compartmentalized, yes, I suppose, I don't think of it that way, but I, you know, I'm finally went through healing and lots of therapy and lots of things to put, uh, to make sure that I'm whole and healthy again. I'm glad to hear that. Um, you specifically worked in anti-nuclear proliferation. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It means that I worked to make sure that bad guys, whether they were terrorists, black marketeers, rogue nation states, that they did not acquire a nuclear capability. So that means I'm talking to scientists, uh, people in the supply chain of nuclear weapons, of which there was many different parts, being part of teams that work to make sure the world did not have more nuclear weapons. And it's something I'm passionate about. Uh, my whole adult life really has been focused on that. There's two existential threats. There's nuclear annihilation and there's climate change. And my focus has always been on the nuclear one, which right now we're probably worse off than we've been in a really long time, which is alarming. But I want to, I felt for the most part, that I was doing something substantial and worthwhile. So when I think about you talking to people maybe along the supply chain, you find out about them one way or another, the, the gap in my imagination is how do you go from stranger to someone, just some lady, to infiltrating and getting information or even recruiting them as an asset? Is there any way to sum up how that goes? <laughs> Well, we are taught something in very simple terms of recruitment cycle, spotting, assessing, recruiting. So first, you're finding the right person who's in the right place to tell you about the transfer, say, of sanctioned goods from somewhere, wherever they're manufactured, uh, to wherever they're supposed to end up, North Korea, Iran, where, whatever. Uh, so you're spotting, you're assessing, who is this person? What is their daily routine? What are their motivations potentially to cooperate with you? What, what's wrong with their life? Are they going through a horrible divorce? You know, you, ne you never know what it is that people at that particular point you've found them, like what is it that you can use to persuade them to cooperate with you? And then there's recruiting, which 
some very rarely you do what's called a cold pitch, which sounds like it, like they have no idea. They've never seen you before. You've never seen them. And uh, this happens. It happened on the eve of the our invasion to Iraq. You know, there was no time. But um, typically it's a longer process. Uh, and we do something what's called peeling away the onion, the layers, you know, first they just think I'm like this consultant lady and I'm paying them to give me some insights into whatever. And, you know, they're happily taking payment and so on, you know, it's kind of discreet and you're introducing more and more covert elements, clandestine elements into this relationship and they're going along with it and they're okay. And then you find out that the divorce is really going badly and they need a whole bunch more money and or whatever it might be, or their child is ill. And, and wouldn't you know, you have access to the medicine they need. Or And by the time the recruitment comes around in a typical, more usual cycle, many times, this never happened to me, but many times your target will say like, what took you so long, right? Like, hello, come, we're, you know, let's just proceed and let's, add more uh, elements of security to protect this whole operation. And that's ideally how it should happen. But, you know, the worst is you pitch someone and they say no and they scream and run out and, you know, their hair's on fire. But hopefully that you've done a good assessment process for weeks or months or years to that so that it's not a surprise. Have you ever felt like a real fondness, like a real caring and real connection with an asset that was different than anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. You are responsible for them. They are in your hands. Uh, they are taking enormous risks. In in some cases, if their affiliation or cooperation with the U.S. government was found out, they would be killed. And that focuses your mind pretty sharply. Did that ever happen with someone you worked with? Yes. And Look, the you know, as it's been famously said, they they're not all Boy Scouts, and some 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 assets are you know not agreeable people at all. They're in fact horrible people. For but not all of them are that way. They're they happen to be in a position. Maybe they're ideologically opposed to their country's regime. Uh, as again, there's as many motivations as there are individuals, and you just dial that up or dial that down. But I personally felt a great sense of responsibility. In fact, it's almost sacred to take care of these people, which is why when we invaded Iraq and so many of the people that had helped us, scientists and others that in many cases simply disappeared, there is a real gnawing sense of what happened to them. Either we tried to reach them or couldn't reach them or whatever. And it's, it's sickening, honestly. Because, you know, spotting and uh, analyzing the ways that people are is a part of your job and was a part of your job for so long. Do you feel like that transferred into the rest of your life? You know, like you and I've been talking for a little while is, are there things about me that you think, you know, because you're just really good at reading people? I like to think that, although sometimes when I have total miscommunication with my spouse or my kids, I'm like, oh, I'm not nearly as good as I think I am. So, you know, it's not like I'm a mind reader at all. Um, but your observation of both body language and 
a person's surroundings. I'm looking at where you are and your space that you've decorated. You've put that up unless it's someone's else. Tell, you know, it, it provides clues. You're paying attention. And I think a really important quality characteristic to have, of course, is genuine and authentic curiosity as journalists have. Um, it's just put to different use, but it's, you can't fake that. You know, people know when it's insincere. And I think it's listening, like what's, I'm yappering, yammering away here, but if 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 we're different, I would be asking you all these questions. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> then I can say I've been interrogated by Valerie Plame. I'm kind of into it, kind of into it. So for another episode, we're recording an interview with your friend and colleague, Jana Mendez, who was the former CIA chief of disguise. Have you ever worked with disguises in your lifetime? And if so, can you talk about that? I have. Yeah, because I mean, look at me. I don't look, you know, like I belong in the Middle East or New Mexico for the many places in the world. Right. <laughs> so if you're operational, you uh, you want to blend into your environment. And in many places of the world, of course, for women, it's much easier because you are dismissed. You're not really, you're just kind of wallpaper. But disguise is important, uh, especially when there's heavy surveillance, naturally, because you want to keep your asset and your operation safe. But sometimes it's just a matter really of blending in. I mean, you you can walk into the room and own the room and you're just on and you're, or you can walk in and no one pays any attention to you. Just depends. Wow. So it's like one circumstance, the only, one of few circumstances where it's great that women are totally unacknowledged and underestimated. It's true. I mean, I do think in general, women have an advantage in the spy game, because they are naturally tend to be this generalization, but that's why it's a generalization. Women tend to be more empathetic. You know how we're, we're always like copying body language and nodding. Mm, tell me more. I mean, with your girlfriends, you do that all the time. Naturally, you're like, oh, tell me that bad date, bad date. Yeah. And you are less threatening to men because, you know, because of the whole game that's going on. So you, in that aspect, you have to be careful. You're not flirting uh, romantically, but you're flirting, bringing, you know, come on, tell me more about you. I'm so interested. And so you can use that really well uh, and to your advantage. Was there ever a time where, uh, because you're a woman and inherently that brings with it the risk of sexual assault, which is just the way the world is right now and has been for all the time, was there ever a time where you feared for your life or for um, your body in any way? Oh, I've had men chase me around the table, but, you know, you just, I mean... Honestly, that like is such a, a normal story as we find out more and more women feeling comfortable coming. I mean, thank goodness I'd never had any sort of assault. You just like, this is ridiculous. You're not going to be chasing me around the table. Let's talk about, you know, uh, but in terms of really heightened sense of adrenaline coursing throughout my system, I've, I've met with terrorists. And although it's obviously a controlled environment as it can be, and I know that there's surveillance on the meeting, and I know more than he does in many ways, it's still 
you know, your, your mouth goes dry because you know what this person has done and is capable of doing, but despite what movies portray, you, you know, hopefully you have more cards, uh, better cards in your hand than they do. And they're paying attention. They are meeting with you to get something from you. And so you are manipulating that situation to your advantage. So that makes me imagine you playing like 4D chess while also being like fundamentally a human being on planet Earth, which brings with it all these feelings of compassion and also fear. And you're trying to do your job and you're keeping all of these balls in the air. I I wonder how when you are in the most stressful situations on the job, at least because there are other stressful situations off of it or adjacent to it, when you are feeling that enormous pressure, what are you doing in your head with your breathing, in your guts, the rest of your body to remain calm and focused? Mm, that's a great question. I think I'd be much better at it now because I ha- I feel like I have more conscious toolkit available to me because we do know more now about how important breathing is, simply breathing and, and bringing you into the moment and so forth. But I just relied on honestly, my youth, you know, your ability to bounce back and to youth provides so much. I mean, you just don't know it at the time, right? You take it all for granted. But I was lucky. I had two great parents and, you know, that a good foundation there. And in really stressful situations, just focus, be calm, cool, collected, And don't panic, solve the problem in front of you. You know, you're drawing on all this training that's been given to you as well. So, but I do feel like, gosh, I wish I could kind of redo some of that stuff in my past because I could do it better now, I feel, which comes with age and wisdom. But without, without all those benefits of youth, I guess that's just the way it is. Yeah, same. Um, (laughs) When... People think about the CIA and spies. I imagine they think about what Hollywood has told them to think about with 007 and Mission Impossible and the Bourne Identity. What does Hollywood get wrong about what you do? Uh, Several points. One is that it is a lone wolf enterprise, and it is not. It is always a team effort. And I've noticed, back to James Bond, in later iterations of the franchise, they have brought in more of that teamwork quality. But the early ones where, you know, Sean Connery is out there on his own, that just doesn't happen. You can't function that way or you wouldn't be alive for very long. You have people that the analysts that are tell you who's who you need to go after. You have your surveillance team that's keeping you safe. Um, there's just so many elements that go into it. And anyone who thinks it's a, a lone wolf thing are going to be sorely disappointed. So that's one thing that always jumps out at me. Another thing is, and again, perpetrated by Bond, who I love, you know, who doesn't love Bond, but so entertaining. But the idea of the sexuality, using the sexuality, particularly of females to gain a intelligence. It just doesn't happen that way. Um, other intelligence services do use what are commonly called honeypots, you know, that, that there's somehow, which is not to say you, I used being a woman to my advantage in that 
you are attuned to other people. You appear less threatening. You're a little bit of a psychologist, your shoulder to cry on. And I even think about how I, as a woman, will sometimes use the perception that I don't know what I'm doing or I can't reach the top of the shelf. Like it's manipulative. Oh, tell but me. Like, you don't we think only... I just being a dumb blonde? Yeah. Right? <laughs> really? Tell me about that. How, huh? How does it work? <laughs> you know, and they fall for it every time. <laughs> that was former CIA operative Valerie Plame. When we get back. After her covert identity was leaked to the world in 2003, and there was no way she could ever do her job again, how did that feel? For quite some time, I was in shock. Where you have photographers on your front lawn taking pictures of your toddlers, I mean, the rage that that foments in a mother's heart cannot be adequately described. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Everybody's heard about Valerie Plame. The way she was treated, it's a goddamn shame. Hey, Valerie, how could they do this to you? You better watch your back, there ain't nothing that they won't do. You better watch your back, there ain't nothing that they won't do. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're getting to know Valerie Plame. She's a former covert operations officer for the CIA, specializing in nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. And that phrase, weapons of mass destruction, or WMDs, will be part of her story forever. Valerie became a household name in 2003. What happened was, in the months following 9-11, the Bush administration alleged that Iraqi President Saddam Hussein had WMDs. Intelligence gathered by this and other governments leaves no doubt that the Iraqi regime continues to possess and conceal some of the most lethal weapons ever devised. This regime has already used weapons of mass destruction against Iraq's neighbors and against Iraq's people. The Bush administration thought, hey, if Iraq does have WMDs, then it could share them with other political enemies of the U.S. who would then maybe elevate their attacks on our soil. The frenzy around WMDs opened the door to the Iraq War. Now, 20 years later, we see that that war led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and caused destabilization across the world for generations to come. 
Here's Valerie on how all of this connects with her famous outing onto the world stage. So in July 2003, my then husband, Ambassador Joe Wilson, wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times entitled, What I Did Not Find in Africa. And in it, he went after the central premise that the Bush administration had given to the world, to the American public, for going to war in Iraq, which was an imminent nuclear threat. We don't want to see the smoking gun in the shape of a mushroom cloud sort of thing. And what he wrote in the op-ed was like, that's not true. Um, That is false, a false narrative. It's bogus. Uh, We have been schnookered into a war of choice. As a result, a week later, a conservative columnist by the name of Robert Novak, who is now dead, uh, wrote a column, a syndicated column, and he said, talking about Joe's remarks, and oh, and by the way, his wife, Valerie Plame, works for the CIA. And I was in a covert status at the time, and immediately... When I read this at like five in the morning in the paper, the Washington Post, I knew that my covert career was over. I was deeply concerned for all the agents that I had worked with over the years that were affiliated with me, even if it was benign uh, in cases, right, that they would cause suspicion, dark cloud over their heads. And of course, on a personal level, I was thinking about the safety of my then three-year-old twins. It quickly became this crazy political thing that the Republicans and the the advocates of the war in Iraq uh, started calling us traitors that we had set up without going into all the background that Joe had gone a year before at the request of the CIA to check out these reports of yellow cake uranium from Iraq, excuse me, from Niger to Iraq, uh, which he said were bogus. I was called a glorified secretary, you know, because girls, what can they do? Um, And it went on for years and it it, it just swirled around the Bush administration. And in 2007, the end, at least of that chapter, was that the vice president's chief of staff, Scooter Libby, was convicted on four out of five counts, including obstruction of justice and lying. And uh, his sentence was commuted. And then President Trump uh, pardoned him I think in 2017, but um, you know the damage was done. My my covert career was over. If none of that had happened, I'm pretty sure I would be overseas right now doing what I really love doing, which was <laughs> chasing down nuclear weapons or the, and the people who had them and shouldn't have them. How did you process? Did you process your anger because? <laughs> I can't imagine uh, how angry you must have been. Uh, It took a while. I think for honestly, for quite some time, I was in shock where you have photographers on your front lawn taking pictures of your toddlers. I mean, the rage that that foments in a mother's heart cannot be adequately described. 
And it was a constant against both me and my husband. And we were just in survival mode. Um, yes, I do have anger still to this day, because although my twins are now 23 years old, I felt like I lost a lot of their childhood because I'd be like, Shh, daddy's on TV. And I couldn't be fully present for them because all this madness was going on. So I'm really pissed about that. But, you know, for all those involved, Carl Rove, Dick Cheney, Scooter Libby, Bush, I don't think honestly was really as in, he wasn't that informed about it. I think they were protecting him as your staff should do. Um, but there were many others, not to mention all, mostly the men who were jingoistic and led us into a war of choice to satisfy some ideological, scratch some ideological itch about remaking the map of the Middle East. And, you know, here we are in the midst of uh, madness and atrocities in Gaza, in Israel. And it, 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 uh, so anyway, yeah, the anger, uh, you know, look, you can't hold that because it'll just poison you, but there's aspects. Yeah. After 2003 happened and you were suddenly thrust into the world stage, obviously that was extremely painful. Um, at the same time, uh, you were able to talk about it eventually, to write your memoir, two spy novels. Also, you became the namesake of a song by the Decemberists. I know, right? What was that like to hear? It was so bizarre. Well, I reached out to them and we, you know, we chatted a little bit. Uh, I do like the band even before then. But it was just so surreal because I, I'm not, I didn't want to be a public person. I had no aspirations to be so. And particularly in in my my chosen career, you know, <laughs> secrecy and discussion is kind of important. I enjoyed the part where I could talk about things that I cared about. And all of a sudden, you know, for when I was really sort of everywhere in the news and, and uh, where I could talk about things, whether it's the nuclear threat or whether it's even postpartum depression, you get to shine. If you can use that spotlight to push it to other areas that you think are worthwhile, then it's a little more palatable. But I I never sought it out and it's not my... It's not my happy place, but I over time, I sort of acclimated, I guess, to that new reality. Well, at least it's a song you can kind of sway to. I know. <laughs> bring you some kind of comfort. Did you know there was another one about you by the Left Coast Troubadours? No, I'll have to find it. How is it? It's delightful. It's even, it's, it's, it's loving. <laughs> and that's the cool thing. It's like, oh, all these songs are sympathetic. Like, this was oh, not good. Cool. This is not nice. Good. And it's funny now in my life, if someone will say to me, oh, I was talking to someone or I told them I knew you, I'm, I have to say my guards up right away. Like, what did they say? You know, you never know. Like, do they hate you? Right. What does Valerie claim synonymous with in terms of a feeling, which is unsettling? Yeah. You, you, you just don't know. I never, I, I don't assume anything in, in that regard. And when I've been talking about the fact that you and I have been recording for this episode about you, 
for those who recognize your name, for the most part, the story is, oh, yeah, wasn't she? She was like a CIA or something. And like she got outed. And that's where the most at least most people that I've spoken to, you are a victim. Yeah, I don't like I I personally do, I don't like that because it, it's so passive. Um, I would <laughs> if anything, I was a survivor of this crazy political maelstrom that engulfed me and my husband, Joe Wilson. And I always liken it to falling down Alice's rabbit hole, where white is black and black is white and nothing makes sense anymore. I'm still unpacking it. It it will take a while because we we live so fast and so hard and so crazy for so many years that it takes time to unwind that and go, hmm, you know, who, who am I and what have I learned from that? And how do I maybe take that and learn from it and move forward? But that's that's a long, that is not one therapy session. <laughs> Some EMDR can be sprinkled in there. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, there's all sorts of, uh, um, shall we say, off-label. Yeah. <laughs> There's off-label things that might help integrate that. (laughs) Yes, integration's key. Yeah. That was former CIA operative Valerie Plain. When we get back, Valerie's thoughts on Edward Snowden and at least a little bit of positive perspective on the current state of the threat of nuclear war. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. Valerie Plame, that really is your name. I would just shout the same to the world. Dear Valerie Plame, that really is your name. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Valerie Plame is a former covert operations officer for the CIA. She was outed as an operative in 2003, and she has had a lot to talk about since, well, she's been allowed to talk about some of it. Let's get back to our conversation. This one makes my heart race a little bit to ask, but you spent your career in one way or another convincing people to betray their own government, and you've used people's disdain for the unethical actions of their own government or whatever their motivations are, Mm -hmm. which were probably many, to commit espionage. That's right. And you're also a vocal critic of a lot of U.S. foreign policy, like the Iraq War. Will you talk about any feelings of sympathy or understanding that you may have for American citizens who commit espionage against the U.S.? Mm. Um, I don't have any sympathy. To me, it betrays all the things that I believe in. And right now in the United States, you don't need me to, we are, we are in a really, really dark chapter. And there are days when I really despair. That said, we do hold fast to our set. Sometimes, you know, we do our best to hold fast to our set of values and to provide a beacon for the rest of the world and leadership. I believe the Biden administration, not perfect, many, many flaws. Nevertheless, they are trying. Now, in a case 
like what happened with Snowden, and we could have a whole episode just on that, that's not so clear cut, is it? Because he was pointing out, hey, these are places where these were the U.S. government is doing actions that fall short of what we say we want to do. Uh, collecting information in vast quantities on American citizens. Now, Snowden, this is now ten going back 10 years ago, he said, listen, I tried. I tried to tell all my supervisors and ring the bell and and there are those that said that no, that never happened. We, you know, he he did not say anything like that. I don't I don't know what is true there. What I do know is true is that these things happened. There is no doubt about that. Now, Snowden is speaking Russian, living in Moscow, and no doubt he will be there for the rest of his life. He will never have a fair trial if he were to come back to the United States. And I like to think, although I'm not certain that a lot of those excesses that were, I think, a, a knock-on effect from what happened after 9-11 have been curbed. It's no longer the hot topic, but it I think it did manage to pull back a little bit of some of the most zealous, you know, for instance, surveillance of U.S. citizens. We hold our privacy dear, even though it's been challenged uh, at every turn. So it's complicated, right? It is because, you know, in many ways and probably ways we don't even know, which checks out, our intelligence has saved lives. No question. And at the same time, you know, including what we've talked about, uh, gathering information on citizens, there's, oh my God, so many other shady unethical practices, interfering with foreign elections, political assassinations, oh. LSD experiments during <laughs> the, the Cold War. The list is long. The list right, is spying very, very on Muslim long. Americans after 9-11, running the drone program, the flooding the black community with crack in the six, like so many examples of how the our intelligence- Butcher which I I spoke out very strongly against when that came to light, horrifying. We completely destroyed our own value system in that regard. Yeah, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on this difficult push and pull of yes, benefit, and also, oh, no. <laughs> Where, when you think about like how you wish Americans would view the CIA and American intelligence in, in general, what would you, and I know you've been out for a while, but what would you say to those who are seeing the good and the bad? How should we feel about the CIA? On balance, I believe that it, it, its existence is necessary for the reasons that I mentioned, to inform our policymakers to have good intelligence to make decisions. Of course, then it's incumbent on the U.S. population to elect uh, leaders with good judgment, but that's, you know... <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other story. Um, but this is that uh, democracy is you know, a cliche, but true. It's really messy and we're always falling short. But you have to, you know, the trend, you know, the arc of history bends toward justice. On my better days, I do believe that. Some days it's hard to hard to get your arms around that. But certainly in the area of my expertise and what I'm passionate about, which is a whole nuclear threat. I believe that the CIA and its capabilities is absolutely vital. If we're going to turn this around right now, you know, the the doomsday clock is uh, seconds to midnight, the closest it's ever been since it was invented after the atomic age began. 
so they they play and that and counterterrorism play a really crucial role in trying to keep the international order as it was set up after World War II somewhat in line. Although on the nuclear thing, I will say, because I was working on something, it's very clear that all the guardrails between what were the superpowers when there was a Soviet Union in the United States in terms of uh, nuclear arms treaties, they have all gone by the wayside. They're crumpled on the ground. The only thing really left is the New START Treaty, which is due to expire in 2026. And Putin has already said, eh, not so interested anymore. So it's, we really are, I believe, in a new nuclear arms race. Uh, So having an intelligence service providing that sort of information and context is very important. Warts and all. Warts and all. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, you have to come to terms with all of it. And to be able to hold two ideas of opposing uh, notions at the same time. So nuclear war, not great. And I could ask you, <laughs> hey, how do you feel like when the doomsday clock just keeps moving closer to midnight? Uh, yeah, is that about right? And I'm assuming you'd say, yeah, that is about right. And yeah, it's pretty bad. But And so I think we're on board with that. But what is the good news? Is there any good news when it comes to nuclear weapons currently? There are a couple steps um, that we could do to ease the tension. One is take our nuclear weapons off first alert, which is we would tell the world that we would only use nuclear weapons defensively, uh, that we commit to never using them offensively. Uh, That would be one thing. We should also get rid of land-based missile silos because they do absolutely no good. <laughs> if you don't, the Russians know exactly where they are and our defensive capabilities could be, are more than adequately covered uh, through ballistic missile, through machine, uh, machine, submarine launches and so forth. But what it really takes, and we've seen this before, we've come so close when Gorbachev and Reagan met in Reykjavik They came this close to eliminating nuclear weapons. And it's no surprise that only a year or two before they met that in Central Park, there are a million people saying, we don't want this. This is not making us any safer. And the good news is, I guess, from the height of the Cold War, where we had about 70,000 nuclear weapons, we're now down to about 12,000 worldwide. I mean, it only would take about 100 nuclear uh, explosions to commence a nuclear winter. But still, you have to celebrate what you have. Clearly, Putin, with his saber rattling over Ukraine, that, that's changed the calculations, hasn't it? And I had hopes for Biden, but this administration seems intent on spending trillions, that's with a T, over the next decade or so in so-called modernizing our, which is, is sort of a euphemism. I mean, who can be against modernization, but it's adding more to our nuclear arsenal and it doesn't keep us any safer and it costs so much money. So it's something I feel 
passionate about. If I had not been at it, I would still be working on this today because I have children. (laughs) And you don't even need children to care. You don't need children, but it gives you a, perhaps a, a heightened sense of what's at stake. Is it, I saved my final question for last, the hardest question for last. Is it true? And I need you to be really honest with me today that you are a huge Rolling Stones fan and that you love the song, Gimme Shelter. Yes, yes. I listen to that at very high volume in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks um, because we are sort of, you know, in 24-7 mode at the agency and everything that we were doing there. I've long been a Stones fan. I've been to several of their concerts and gosh, they're still pretty cool at 80. I mean, it's unbelievable. I don't know what Keith Richards is doing, but you I want to be around. Know. That's a secret you don't want to know. You don't want to know, Valerie. Apparently, yeah, what he says, he's like, my drugs were always pure. They were like of the best quality. Okay. Um, but they, they, they still have creativity to them. They're not, you know, so I give them props and they, it's not like they are doing it for the money. They, they have plenty of that and they're still creating. So I salute that. Valerie Plame, thank you so much for talking with me and for all that you've done for our country. Thank you. Uh, your questions were great and clear and, um, I'm just so happy to be with you today. Valerie and some of her colleagues from the CIA will be at the Spies, Lies, and Nukes Conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico from November 10th to the 12th. We'll have a link to that and to her memoir and two spy novels at ctpublic.org audacious. The show is always so very lovingly produced by Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, with help from our courageous interns, Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan. And if you like this episode featuring someone who is very good at keeping secrets, check out a show we did about people who are very good at manipulating the truth. Subscribe to our podcast feed and you'll see an episode we did featuring two people who've struggled with pathological lying and find out what they've learned in their attempts at reformation. Just search Audacious with Kyone Wolf on your favorite podcast app. Stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kyone Wolf, and you can always send me a top secret email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.